Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. Fresh off of Talk the Thrones, The Ringer is introducing a new live Twitter after show covering season two of HBO's Big Little Lies. Immediately after each episode, The Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes will be going live to give their initial reactions and break down everything we saw in the episode. And to kick us off, there will be a special season two preview airing on Friday, June 7th at 12 p.m. Pacific. So join Amanda and Mina for Big Little Live every Sunday on Twitter. Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. On today's episode, we're continuing the theme of art and food with the artist Rickrit Teravanesia. You might know that name because when we did this podcast with Jerry Saltz, he talked about the George Washingtons of the food world of people that are incorporating art. And uh, I had a few other encounters with Rickrit in our sort of small universe that I inhabit. And I wanted to reach out when I realized that we could get him on this podcast. Rick Ritt is a Thai artist born in Buenos Aires. His dad was an official at the Thai embassy. So he's lived all over the world, Argentina, Thailand, Ethiopia, Canada, and the U.S. Before he was an artist, he was training to be a photojournalist. But after seeing two pieces of art, he changed his mind. The first was an artist we've talked about a lot, believe it or not. I don't know why. Marcel Duchamp's Fountain, which was a reference to the urinal and the ready-made that was upside down and something that had never been done before and has become an iconic, most important piece of art. And the other is Kazimir Malevich's White on White, which is a painting of a white square on a white background done right after the Russian revolutions. Both of these pieces beg the question of what constitutes art. And I think a lot of what Rickrit is asking is this sort of same question is, how do you determine the value of something and how do you own the narrative of something he's done a ton of different stuff over the years but his most famous work and the main reason why i was interested in meeting him is the thai food pieces he's done and he's done a lot of different stuff you know, a lot of different mediums but the first food piece he did which was making pad thai in a gallery in new york in the 90s you know, when you unpack it all, it's really unbelievable. And I highly encourage you, when you listen to him tell the story, really understand the thought that he put into it. And basically, in the early 90s, he would set up electric walks at galleries and just make curry or pad thai and serve it to people on disposable plates. The first time he did it at a solo show, everyone thought he was the caterer. I heard from Jerry Saltz, and from other people, when they saw this, it was a holy shit moment for some of the individuals when they saw it. But many other people just didn't understand the significance of it, or they just sort of threw the idea away as like a fad. I think the one thing I have most in common with someone like Rick Ritt, or something that I want to get to know better about, was what he was trying to say with his work. And with Rick Ritt, it happened to be in the medium of cooking. And most of the time, Someone like Rickrit is trying to talk about values and perceptions of the Western world. This sounds very heady and intellectual, and I apologize if it does, because I think sometimes it is. Uh, someone like Rickrit, to me, man, I, I just think he's one of the most fascinating, most articulate, and I, I don't like throwing the word genius around, but that's what it was like when I was talking to him. I even think I called him a bodhisattva because his 
self-awareness, his humanity, his aura that he gives off is someone that you want to rub off on yourself. And how he looks at the world, I, I think, is a beautiful thing. And how he expresses himself is sort of next level. I just could not believe some of the things that he's done and created. And when he tells me how he did the pad thai and just cooking in the galleries. And I think that is so significant to me because when I get to talk to Roberta Smith and she tells me that Donald Judd made a statement about Marcel Duchamp's The Fountain, The Urinal, The Upside Down Urinal, and basically said, Duchamp created fire with the ready-mades. And I'm paraphrasing here. He created fire with the ready-mades, but he didn't do anything with it. And when I talk to someone like Rick Ritt, who basically says, I was moved by the urinal and the fountain and the ready maze by Marcel Duchamp, but what I really wanted to do was piss in it. I was like, well, first, I need to understand better the urinal, the fountain by Marcel Duchamp and understand what that means. And then it took me a long time to understand what he was trying to say is he was saying, I need to do something with it. He's sort of directly linking to something that Donald Judd said that, okay, that's fire. Now I want to do something with it. So pissing in the urinal when he's telling me he wants to do that was so powerful to me because essentially that's what cooking pad thai in a gallery on electric walks was. It was a kind of art that might rub people the wrong way. It was an understanding, something that I didn't quite understand until he told me. And it all ties in to these conversations we've had in the past because, you know, we've been talking about Korean pottery. We talked about Roberta Smith's great sort of review about Korean pottery at the Met in the year 2000. We're talking about new stories that are being told in art as we've all reached a point in the world where everything's running parallel and things are harder than ever to describe. And while it's very interesting, the only thing that might be new is new stories from people that have not traditionally been heard from or accepted. And when Rick Ritt tells me the story of how he was in Chicago and he was in the museum and he sees Asian pottery and Thai cookware in a museum hanging and how he wants to reclaim that by using it, everything to me is like full circle. Everything to me makes sense in a way that I didn't understand just two months ago. So I get it now because Rick Rick to me is like this bridge of art and also someone that is expressing himself through food and through my understanding of his cooking and the process, I get to understand art a little bit better. So it's a very thrilling conversation for me to talk to Rick Ritz. So while it might seem not exciting to you, it was infinitely exciting to me and hopefully that comes through. So there's a lot to talk about. Influences of food, the styles of food, and how it gives me hope that if Rick Rick can do this with food, maybe all the new things that are really going to happen that make the world a better place to eat and more accepting is going to be about inclusion, is going to be about diversity. And not just because we say it has to be, because it is good on its own merit. And we're finally going to have people that have the platform to tell that. So there's a lot of identity in what Rick Rick does. And I didn't realize there was a lot of anger in what Rick Rick is trying to express. And I felt, I don't want to use the word triggered, but I, I just felt a level of sameness that I've never felt with anyone before. So I was really honored to have Rick Rick Teravenesian on this podcast. Okay, I've rambling on too much. Here's my conversation with Rick Rick Teravenesia.
we had Jerry Saltz on the podcast, and it seemed like many people liked that pod quite a bit because it dealt with the creative process and so on and so forth. And he wrote 33 Rules for How to Be an Artist. You should check it out. (laughs) Whether there are rules or not, that's a debatable thing. But I've gotten to know Jerry and really admire how he views things and his wife, Roberta Smith. And in the podcast, he brought up Rick Ritt. Rick Ritt. I can't pronounce your name perfectly, so apologies. Tervanesian. Tervanesia. Tervanesia. And he's here right now in my apartment in New York, and uh, I'm honored to have you. And one of the things as we've discussed in this podcast was trying to find ways to talk about food in other forms of culture and vice versa to get a better understanding of this industry from a professional cook's point of view and so on and so forth. And over the past couple of years, I've tried to understand art a little bit better. And I guess from Jerry's perspective, you can't understand art. I just try to see the perspective of why certain forms of art were being made and why they were important. And what I love about art are the moments where an individual rejected the status quo of how to create something and a revolution ensued. That is inspiring and it gives me great meaning to try to do something similar in the creative arts, uh, in food, so on and so forth. And more and more, I kept on coming into how food is similar to how art has evolved over the years. And it's probably the oldest cultural expression we have. Mm. Certainly the oldest. And talking about the birth of modern art, and I try to think about what Duchamp did quite a bit, and I want to talk to you about that, and I'm just sort of summarizing how we got here and how food today is so confusing if you try to understand it because it's just so complex and something that shouldn't be because it's just food. (laughs) Yet you have the business of it that's similar to the business of art, and that's sort of a whole deceitful thing at times, and the creative process very similar. And then I have been wrestling with this idea, are chefs artists? Because that's something that a lot of chefs get very angry at because they want to see themselves as craftsmen, at least. At least I always have. And in the conversation with Jerry, I know this is long-winded, he said, well, no, people have done that, and you should talk to this artist <laughs> named Rick Red. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. And then the, the more I went down the rabbit hole and what you were doing, I was like, number one, I don't know if I, quote-unquote, understand everything yeah. that you're doing. I know that it's important, and I'm trying my best to see what it is that you're doing because you're an artist that is a chef. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I I would definitely not call myself a chef. And I often even would say that I'm not a very good cook in a way. I use food, I mean, in a simple, you know, kind of sum it up. I use food because it is a space where we can all sit together and be together. I mean, I started off in a very different place. I started off in a, well, I would describe it as like when you talk about Duchamp, I would say I wanted to take the urinal, put it back on the wall and piss into it. Meaning like after the ready-made, I felt like, well, there is nothing else to be made. So what can you do when everything has already been made? Duchamp's urinal was that significant in this grand scheme of things? Yeah. I mean, for me, yes, it was definitely what made me interested in art because I I didn't know anything about art until 
I came to the West, you know, and uh, I saw the urinal in the art history class. And that was when I said to myself, okay, I think I'm going to go look at this and figure this Can out. Can I ask, when you first saw it, though, and you weren't an artist when you were younger, you studied something else, right? I was, uh, I just finished high school and I was planning to be a photojournalist. So I was interested in photography. But I was already, at that point, I was interested in just working for myself. My father's a civil servant. I mean, he was a diplomat, but he was a civil servant. And he spoke against that idea all the time because it was very corrupt and, you know, Thai government and all that. So I I said to myself, okay, I'm going to find myself something that I'm interested in doing that would, you know, I would work for myself. I'd be free. And so photography and photojournalism seemed like a sensible feel in a way at that time. And so I went to the journalism school and that's when I looked at art history. So I was interested in photography, but I didn't know it in terms of in relationship to art. I knew it as like images in the news or life magazine or, you know. So when I had that encounter with art that way, it's a big shift because it wasn't just like looking at pictures. It's like actually more about thinking about things. Hmm. And when you first saw the urinal, the ready-made, what is considered one of the greatest works of art of all time, at least modern speaking, right? It almost ushered in a new era. Your first thought was, this is amazing. You understood it right off the bat. Yeah, I felt that this is an amazing idea and that I needed to know more about it. Just an epiphany, right? You'd really come to a point in your life where you stood there and you realized, wow, this is actually something you need to, to do. It took me, and I still don't know if I understand it, I didn't understand it. <laughs> I was like, how? for me, I was stuck, and this is ultimately my neurosis, especially with food. How can that be considered great when it may not be as good as the previous true masters before it, right? In terms of the actual technical skill. Yeah. He bought a urinal, put RL Mutt on it, and put it upside down. Yeah. The fact that there was no classical greatness to create that art yeah. confounds me and confounds me still. Well, I would say, I mean, of course, like he came from different structures, right? So if you talk about at that time, I mean, contextually, there were like many questions. There was the First World War and the life after, you know, like so going through the war. So there are like a lot of things happening to people. And I think, of course, like in a way, you have to, basically philosophically ask yourself why do you exist and how is it that you're existing in this condition and in those questions i would say yeah then one could find you know context or proposition for the urinal or for the ready-made but it doesn't mean that it's i, I would say for me it's it's certainly answered some question and then that made more other questions right and in what, what did the urinal answer for you um, because it's obviously… Well, it certainly answered that you don't need to have your own skill to think things. You know, so you could use your imagination. You could use your, the idea of concept, conceptual structures. So the idea of making things just out of ideas. Or to make a representation which is a representation of an idea. Rather than a representation of other things. So it's like meta-art. Yeah. <laughs> and that's influenced the kind of art that you want to express. 
Well, it certainly is like a starting point. I mean, as an artist, I guess you have to ask yourself, what is art all the time? What is art then? Well, I mean, art is um, a place where you can ask a lot of questions. <laughs> From my own sort of stupid vantage point, I've always struggled with like, what is art? Art has to be good. And what is good, you know? And is it the most expensive? Is it what is the most desirable? Is it aesthetically pleasing? And the more and more I ask myself these questions, the more and more troubling those answers become for me. Yeah, but I mean, okay, let's just say those same questions apply to f- cooking and mm-hmm. eating, right? Because, of course, like you could say the same thing. I mean, you know, food is is a big scale. I mean, as you go and experience all these things as you are now traveling and doing this other show, there is craft and then there is passion, right? right? And passion and craft could go together and that becomes something even better. Uh, so I would say it's the same kind of thing. Like, you know, a good curry next to the street is a good curry. You'd go there from wherever to eat it, you know? And for me, as I try to understand what you do in art that's out of my comfort zone, because I'm trying to compare it to, say, like, Raphael or something like that, I think I'm trying to grow up and mature in a way because from a culinary point of view, I've had to teach myself or, or I've indoctrinated myself that— Robochon and uh, Paul Bocuse and stuff like that. These classic westernized dishes were the pinnacle of gastronomy. And that everything else was garbage, essentially. Because that's what was taught to me. Even the beautiful food that my grandmother and mother made for me, because it was vilified by my you know, school kids, right? No one wanted to eat it. Like I had no representation in the world that it would be good at all. And it's taken me a long time to realize that a bowl of street curry in Thailand or wherever it may be, properly made, properly made being delicious, is just as beautiful as a breast chicken stuffed with truffles carved tableside mm-hmm. in, a, in a waiter wearing a tuxedo. Yeah. And what I've really tried to meditate on is the only thing that matters is how you feel about what you ate. Is it delicious? Did it give you joy? And was it of value to you, Right. And if you ask most people what their most memorable meals are, no one's ever going to say, oh, yeah, it was the fifth course in this six-hour tasting menu. (laughs) You know, it's going to be the bowl of curry on the street or the taco I got in Mexico City and stuff like that. And that is where art is, is that moment where you can, you know, having seen or done and experienced a lot of things, that there's a moment when you can say to yourself, wow, this is a really good bowl of noodle compared to other things in the world. And But you can't compare it to other things in the world if you haven't gone through it. Mm. And I would say, in a way, like the urinal is to say that, so it isn't about anymore about skill. It isn't about illusions. It, it's what it is. And what it is could be more about how you think about it. And I would say, okay, I would have to say also, like when you say that those French masters were like the king of food, you have to realize that that is a construction made for us by a particular group of people. I mean, for me, it would be, that's like the Western knowledge. And I'm against that because I'm coming from some other place and I'm going to take that down. And in order to take that down, I have to question it. So I was saying I started from some other place before food. Basically, I started off in the Art Institute of Chicago looking at like, 
artifacts, like cultural artifacts. So it's a museum that collects Asian art objects. And I was looking at it and it was like all like bowls and pottery and Buddhas. And I was like, but these are all things that I actually use in my daily life. Mm. And they've elevated it into an aesthetic object. They've displaced it from my reality and made into something of a certain value. And that value is determined by by their idea of what it should be. Who's their idea? Their being the West. So I said to myself, well, I'm going to try to retrieve my culture out of this. I'm going to like find a way to get it back. And the way to get it back is to reanimate it. And reanimation means, you know, taking the pot and cooking in it. That's what I mean by taking the urinal and pissing into it. So you take that thing, which is their object, and then you put your life into it. And I would say that's what I think, at least from where I come from, that's what it is. We don't sit around thinking about the object. We think about you know, the it. people around it, right? I'm trying to wrap my head around this because like, if there was an animation, my head would be exploding right now. So, uh, <laughs> it's a lot to think about when you wrap your head around what you're just talking about, about well, taking mean, it back. Think about it this way, right? I mean, they basically took your noodle bowl from Momofuku and put it into a glass case and say, wow, this is actually the beauty, right? But in fact, the beauty isn't that. It's actually maybe the noodle. It's maybe the cook who made the noodle. It may be the people who sat around and ate the noodle, but it's definitely not the bowl, you see? So they've put their value onto the object. So you're questioning everything. Yes. It's getting back, critically thinking things through to the point of who's assigning value to anything. Right. And I'll be damned if it's anyone else other than me (laughs) (laughs) or my culture. Yeah, or that we have to rethink, I mean, who we are and, you know, we're not to be told by other people. I mean, I would say the other being the West to me, I'm not going to be told by them where my value is or who I am. Is there a sense of anger? Um, Of course, there is a sense of anger, but what one can always do it through laughing. Hmm. Everything you're saying are like the core of who I am as a person. I want to do that through food. And I do believe you can make change through food. And to hear someone that's an artist doing it with food right now and in the past five minutes, I'm like, holy shit. There's a lot of holy shit moments for me right now. (laughs) I'm not just living in my head. You're actually doing it yourself in a whole different form right now. And that's why Jerry said, you guys are like George Washington. You're like the first. (laughs) Right. Yeah. To do this. And I don't, it's not ineffable. I'm just not armed with the ability to articulate what's in my head right now because it's a pretty dense topic. Yeah. It's, you have to live through it. Then who tells you, how do you live with the current critics that determine the value then of the I, art that you're trying to take back? Well, I mean, I would say that I have been successful in doing certain things. I mean, have in moving maybe some of the lines or the periphery being more, you know, I mean, today everybody's looking out. They're not looking in. They are going out to look at things, to to see things, to find things. I mean, it's another, of course, another way of colonizing again, but at least that 
they are spending more time trying to understand it in a real way rather than just by looking at the objects, you know? You think that left to their own devices, the West and those that determine the value would ever want to tell these stories from a different perspective? Or does it take an artist like yourself to say, no, this is unacceptable? Um, Or is there something wrong in human nature? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think uh, we've opened ourselves up a lot more to understanding the other. And then to the point where, of course, now they're closing it in again, right? I mean, there is a president who is trying to basically build walls because um, they're scared of being open to the others. And they're scared because that means no rules. (laughs) Right. Because the rules are being made somewhere else. Or, you know, the rules are not the same rules that they always thought it was. Would that equate to sort of ignorance being happiness then? Um, Yeah, I guess for them, which is kind of unfortunate because it doesn't lead to a better world. Going back on moments or art that moved you, there is a painting, and I can't remember the name of the artist, forgive me, the white on white. Malevich. Who was he? Kazimir Malevich was... um, I guess one would call it suprematist art. So, but it was what I was interested in that actually, you know, and it came again in this flash of slides was the idea of an artist as a kind of spiritual being, but in a kind of also a politicized way, right? So they were in the Russian revolution trying to make new ideas. I mean, the painting is in MoMA, hanging on the hall there. And it's a, again, just, it's not even an image. It's just an idea. (laughs) That's Alexa. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about my living. That's listening. (laughs) The Russian state is listening to you right now. (laughs) They don't approve. (laughs) Yeah, well, so, I mean, again, it was more uh, the idea of, like what an artist was thinking and trying to do. And it's just a white canvas with the off-white square, like at an angle on that. That's it. Yeah. And with untrained eyes, and if I'm trying to look at something like that, how do I understand that if I don't have any context? Well, I mean… Because I'm trying to view art in a way that makes me get it. Yeah. Well, I would say… I saw this where you were in this kitchen in Houston, I think, mm-hmm. and they were making a fur. Oh mm-hmm. no, it was maybe in Louisiana somewhere. It and, was in New Orleans, outside yeah, New Orleans. And he, they were cooking the crawfish in front and they were making fur in the back. Mm-hmm. And you were tasting something. And actually you tasted their crawfish thing and you said, oh, there's star anise. But you actually smelled it from the kitchen, yes. right? And I would say, yeah, I mean, that's how you should experience art. You know, you put it in your mouth, you look at it, and then you try to break it down with your experience, with your own senses. What prevents people from doing it? Like myself, is it impatience or is it my inability Mm, to think outside myself? I think it's fear of mistakes, fear of being wrong, and uh, fear of appearing to be ignorant. We don't think about it all the time, but yeah, we, we go through life with a lot of fear, you know? But on the other hand, we also go through life with also a lot of 
openness in some way, you know, like, so you have to keep yourself open. And then white on white expresses rebellion. Uh, for me, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it, it is, it is against uh, all the things that came before it. And for me, that was important. Like the urinal was against the white on white. But it wasn't something that is against something that destroyed everything. It was something that was against something that made new things. It's constructive. It's not destructive. So I was telling you, I was looking at these potteries in the museums. And then I was like saying to myself, okay, I've got to try to retrieve this back to myself, you know, back to my own space. And so then I said, okay, I'm going to cook. Suddenly one day I just said to myself, I'm going to cook and use the pottery. And then I actually... I made a little pedestal. It was in a group show in Soho. And uh, I had like, you know, a bowl of curry cooking. I had like all the remnants of all the different things I had to cut and garbage and things. And it was sitting there. And the pot was boiling and people were like just looking at it, you know. And then I realized, shit, they're just looking at it. The same thing. It's the same thing as just looking at it in a museum. In fact, they should eat it. So the, then actually the next show I, I made, was a pad thai. It was a stir-fried noodle. How many portions did you make? Uh, I cooked until the last strand of noodle was gone. And I would say, I don't know. I mean, that half the people thought I was just a caterer for the show because there was another show in the big room, in the main room. I was in the small room. And I was in Chinatown getting food and I was running late. I had to carry everything myself. I got to the gallery at six o'clock. So people started to show up and I have to prepare the food, whatever. So then I was like trying to cook. I had like, actually I had like six, seven walks, electric walks. And uh, as I started to cook, people start to line up. And then my friends came, they saw that I was like struggling. So they started to help. And then this- So you're in the weeds. Yeah, you know, everybody started to help, right? And then, and then, you know, 200, 300 people ate that night. When you pitched this idea to the gallery, what was their first response? Well, the person who asked me to do that show knew, you know, he knew what I was up to and he knew the problems of it or whatever. They basically asked me to make sure that the rats wouldn't come at the food during the rest of the show. But of course, because most everything was eaten, there wasn't really a lot of... There was some dry shrimp tails scrapped left, right? And maybe there's some eggshells and things like that. But it was pretty much, you know, kind of uh, dried out and consumed. So the, so it's performance yeah, art. It's kind of a performance. A lot of people saw it as performance. And I always, again, try to say what I don't really perform. So I tried not to make the stage... The audience and the critics, did they understand the significance of what was happening? Or were they just dismissive of it? Um, all the critics were dismissive about it because in a way they had gone through it in the 50s and the 60s with happenings and, you know, different kinds of performance things. And they, of course, cooked. I mean, Gordon Matter clark and, and his friends made this restaurant in Soho called Foods. So it was actually even functioning as a restaurant. So, you know, the older critics said, oh, it's just same, you know, like, what's the difference? But of course, it was like, then she didn't look at the wok I was using. She didn't really think about what kind of noodle I was cooking or what, the, you know. So there are layers of it. I understood, of course, that it wasn't anything new. But I knew that the layers of things within what I was doing was different. 
And then the younger critics uh, actually enjoyed it. What do you do at that moment when you're not being solipsistic? You have a vision, and there's a healthy dose of yourself in it because that's the only way you're going to do something new or try to do new. And you're aware of the past. You knew exactly what had happened in the '50s with this restaurant and all your predecessors that tried to incorporate food in a gallery. It'd be one thing if you didn't know that, but you knew and you were aware and you had every point of view covered. How do you feel when the critics that should know don't appreciate what you're trying to do? Um, and this is definitely me talking about myself. <laughs> um, well, this is where I come to the point about like not being afraid as long as you know yourself. So you know that you yourself know what the truth is. So it's fine. I'm not so worried about whether people understood it or not. I mean, because I think things take time. Ten years later, after that Patai piece, you know, I was walking down Broadway and a man stopped me in, on Broadway and said to me, you know, I just realized that that thing that day that I ate was actually an artwork. Hmm. And he didn't, he, he thought I was just catering. You know, and he only 10 years later or some time later that he realized that it was actually some kind of art. But no one wants to be appreciated after the fact. Um, no, because I think good idea stays around for a long time. And it, I think it may even change. It may shift things. So I'm not worried about today. <laughs> so if you get bad reviews, they don't affect you? No. How did you get so cool? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Seriously. Um, no, because I'm not afraid to make mistakes, you know, and I learn from everything I do. I learn from every day <laughs> that I pass. So, um, I mean, I think for myself, I think for myself, as long as I'm either proving myself and you know, whatever I'm doing, it's always towards myself. If I didn't have to run it as a business, I wouldn't give a fuck about reviews and critics, but I have to. And I derive meaning from it. Well, I mean, you know, I guess you have to ask yourself whether what they wrote is true. Because you could be lying to yourself and everybody else sees the truth. Or they have other reasons. I mean, everybody has different reasons for what they say. And of course, that's a part of it. And that's a part of like thing you need to understand. And not everyone tastes things the same way. And not everyone enjoys the same dish. And going back to the pad thai, what were you trying for those that are trying to imagine a gallery in the 90s and you're making pad thai in a gallery and it's so uh, obvious to people that it seems like you're a caterer. <laughs> what were you hoping that they would understand? Um, well, I was, I mean, I used the electric walk because, of course, it was made and still is made by this company called West Bend. And this walk was uh, in a video by an older artist that I respect a lot. So I was re referencing her work. She um, used the electric walk? Yeah, she was kind of like showing the electric walk. and But I also like... You know, I wanted to also focus on this idea of like the West turning the East into this kind of consumer electronics, right? And how it actually doesn't work. 
it's a it's a electric walks are garbage. Yeah, it's a joke, you know. <laughs> so so the that's a misunderstanding already of the other culture. So the whole thing is made into a product, which is a complete misunderstanding of some other culture, and that's why I wanted to use it. And the patai was, I mean, to me in Thai history, it is the invention by the Thais. You know, it's the only noodle that we have invented. And it was purposefully politically invented because the Thais wanted to have an identity because all noodles are Chinese. And so the government decided to kind of, in a way, invent a dish that would be identified as Thai. And then I also thought it was kind of just ironic to be the stir-fried Thai as the kind of almost like the first solo show I had, you know, was like jumping into the walk personally, putting myself into a place where I could get… Literally into a hot frying pan. Exactly. You know, so there were like different layers of what I thought was kind of, you know, yeah, metaphors and pictures and things. In a younger version of my life, probably would never have gone to that gallery to begin with. But let's just say I was trying to impress a date and like, I'm in this gallery. I probably would have said, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) And I also would have said, maybe it's delicious, maybe it's not. This is just some foo-foo weird shit that is like a sketch on Saturday Night Live or something. (laughs) And my ignorance would have been so great and strong, I wouldn't have spent any time to look at your point of view and the possibility that you would have curated every angle and you are intentionally letting me see everything that I'm seeing is what you want me to see. And it's taken me a long time. And I hope, I hope that I'm more wise and patient and respectful and empathetic that if I walked in the gallery, I'm going to realize that, no, you're not a caterer. You're doing something really meaningful and you never know who holds the keys to your castle. And that could have been it, but I don't know. And I always have to check myself now because everything has a possibility like that, truthfully. And I had to tell you that, like, how do you let people, how do you convince people to see what you want to see? Or how do you let more people be patient and soak things in and to question their default setting. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of like using food. <laughs> because as much as maybe you would like say all those things that you said, but it is also like something you do, you know, three times a day. So it isn't like that out of your experience, you know. So in that way, there is a point where it's open enough. And then it's also like, yeah. Your explanation of the pad thai, again, there should be an image with my mind of an atomic bomb (laughs) exploding because it's like, fuck, that's so amazing. And I think a a chef in a traditional restaurant would kill to have that kind of insight to create a dish and have most of the secrets for themselves to like, that's it, (laughs) right? And uh, that's amazing. But also the other thing I would say is that even the art people didn't see all those things. So we're not spending enough time looking at details. This is an interview for you, but I have wrestled with the idea that, because my buddy Dave Cho, the artist, he is an artist and he makes fun of me because he always says, you're a fucking artist, Chang. <laughs> and I'm always allergic to that idea. 
But we started Fuku, this fried chicken sandwich shop, mm-hmm. in uh, the old noodle bar space on 163 First Avenue. We used to be Co. Yeah. And we flipped it. And I'm now realizing, like, when you say this stuff, it gives me hope because I never really told anyone what we really were trying to do. And I've always said internally, this is an art show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because the bags had delicious on the label. <laughs> they all literally had an R instead of an L. Right. Nothing that we made was from the American South. Everything was from an American Asian perspective. Right. And all the recipes were from Korean recipes or Taiwanese or Singaporean. Every choice was deliberate. And somehow it became an expression of Asian American upbringing. As a Korean American growing up in Virginia and having a Chick-fil-A and having a Southern atmosphere, faux Southern atmosphere pressed upon me, it was like my weird subconscious rebelling against whatever that was. And I wanted to have complete freedom from the narrative of the American South, which was taken away from African-Americans. And I wanted to be respectful to that culture. So all I was doing was actually trying to honor slave culture that wound up into fried chicken and so forth. But I wanted to make sure that it was also a different narrative for Asian people. To reinforce that on the walls, this was like really weird. We put sketches, like uh, cartoon sketches of every Asian bad person <laughs> on the walls. No one got it. You know, <laughs> right. Al Leong, who's uh, the Asian bad guy in Die Hard. You had Bolo from Enter the Dragon. Right. We had Mickey Rooney from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Like, <laughs> right. couldn't be more obvious to me. Yeah. No one got it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fine to me. I didn't, this is the first time I've ever spoken about it. Right. And I remember saying to someone in the office, I was like, Asian values are so not even fucking cared for in America that I guarantee you no one's really going to care that we have something racist on the fucking back. Right. <laughs> and that I'm own, we're, we're taking You're this fucking it. shit back. Yeah. Like I was so angry yeah. that you could see these Asian jokes in food peppered throughout food yeah. criticism or talking to someone that's not Asian. And I just said, enough's enough. And I'm going to show you how, how insidious it is because people will joke about it. And one day I did a, a dinner at a sporting event and the chairman of the whole fucking thing in front of the entire media said, ha delicious. Right. And you have very well-respected journalists in the room. Not one motherfucker said, hey, this isn't appropriate. Right. That's all I was waiting for to start the conversation. Right. So now I've let everyone know. There's a recently there's a couple of journalists that did say something as people were like, this is something we need to talk about. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is I got most of the criticism from Asian Americans. Mm. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. 
ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. And now back to the show. Are there people when you do your art shows and in the variety of ways that you've expressed yourself, whether it's making the bricks, uh, <laughs> you know, which was basically a fuck you to China, uh, and you should look up that exhibit. Where did you do that again? First, I did it in Beijing, actually, and then I did it in Venice. Well, let me back up. Yeah. When you did that, what, what was it? Well, it's a lot of different things. Uh, when I did that exhibition in Beijing, I mean, all of Beijing was being torn down, right? And basically, they're tearing down the old putons or all gone. And then they're building new ones. And as they're building new ones, they pile, they would pile bricks, new bricks in front of where they were going to build the thing, you know? And then you could see people like picking, scavenging, like recycling old bricks at the same time. So it's kind of like, and then I basically had this, um, it was actually a kind of a situationist graffiti from 68 that says, Ne travaille jamais, stop to work. It's about, but it's really more about thinking about what work is. And so I had that translated into Chinese. And then we made this little brick factory. And then the men were like stamping this phrase onto the brick. And we made enough bricks so you could build one hutong. Basically, and a hutong is like the size of like a shack, a small shack. Yeah, it's a small house, like two hundred square feet. Yeah, and you're assembling these hutongs in. Well, we just made the bricks, and and then people could buy it for the price of bricks and take it home, or you know they could. Uh, some people could buy a bigger pile and build a wall, so you could do whatever you want with. And it. each one was stamped with. Yeah. Stop, stop work. working. Yeah. Which in Chinese society means a lot of different things. Yes. So. Very subversive, very rebellious. The question then is what I wanted to get to was if I get criticism from Asian Americans, do you get criticism from Thai people and Asians as a misrepresentation of what you're trying to do and it's not your story to tell? Um, I did earlier on um, because when people heard about me back in Thailand, actually, and they're like the older generation anyway, you know, people, they were like dismissing me as like, oh, this is just some like Western Thai kid t- trying to appropriate Thai culture. They they didn't realize that I was actually really Thai. And uh, <laughs> and then, of course, then they made fun of the food of Pad Thai because, of course, this is like something you eat on the side of the road, you know. So when I first went back after years of, you know, school or whatever, and, you know, like one of the more prominent artists stood up and said, you know, if my wife cooked pad thai at home, is it art? Like in a big seminar. And I said, well, you know, if you invited me to your house, probably would be <laughs> kind of thing, you know. So in the one hand, like critiquing it as like not art in a way, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, yeah, they were dismissing me. I would get on a stage and the moderator would say to the crowd, like, please excuse Rukrit if he has to speak in English. Because they thought that I could speak in Thai. But I was sitting there with all the people talking in Thai, you know, 15 minutes before we got on stage. You know, so they would do things like that. And But I, you know, just laughed through it. 
And today it's a little bit different. You got this like bodhisattva vibe, man. You're just, <laughs> you rise above everything. It's unnerving to me because <laughs> I wish I was that cool. <laughs> and if someone did say, and with what you're doing, it isn't necessarily a low barrier of entry, but then it can create a whole slew of quote unquote artists that are like, I can do this too. Well, I mean, Joseph Boyce, of course, always said, everybody's an artist. And I actually believe that. So I, I don't describe myself as an artist, but I certainly believe that everybody could be an artist. You love the paradox? <laughs> yeah. You know, I respect people who have self-respect, and that's art. So if go, let's go back. Someone says, hey, my partner is making pad thai at home. Is that art? Yeah, yeah, isn't it? But yes. then <laughs> does that dilute the meaning of what you're trying to go for when everyone can have access to it? No, I think, I mean, I always did it in a sense, in a way to open things up. So as long as they're doing it to open things up, then it's better. I don't, I don't need to own everything. I mean, I don't have the need to own anything. I mean, today there are more artists making work, using food and trying to make situations and environment which are about how we relate to each other. And I think that's really how it should be. Then I guess what the question is, and I, and I spoke to Roberta Smith and I spoke to Jerry about this, but more so to Roberta, is food the last frontier for art? Because <laughs> hmm. everything has been done in art. Well, I think the thing about art is that it is that free space. It will always find another frontier. It will always find another form. It will always... And then, you know, things are, all, are moving forward. Life is moving in a different way. But if you speak to the critics again, I can only try to get a perspective from critics because I have no artistic understanding of my own, not yet. It seems like we're in this moment where art is stuck Mm -hmm. And like, seems like everyone's doing the same thing. Or especially what the market dictates. It's like zombie abstraction or whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> well, yeah. Art, art is stuck in, <laughs> up its own ass, in the <laughs> sense that uh, uh, people have become professionalized. This is the problem with the culinary world too. Also. So I would say art is never professional. And can you describe professionalized? People go to school, they go to get their MFA, they then get, you know, make whatever, and then they put it into shows in galleries. And and the reason that they're able to do that is because it's become, well, you, you would, you know, it's become industrialized in a sense. And then everyone's just making decoration. And is it driven by money? It's driven by professionalism, well, which I would say, yeah, in that sense, you know, career, you know, survival. So everyone's following the 33 rules to be an artist. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> so fuck you, Jerry Saltz. <laughs> yeah, Jerry. <laughs> no, I've, I've never read it, but, uh, you know, so, I mean, I teach, right, at, at Columbia, and uh, they just had a thesis show. And um, is that irony? You teach at Columbia, yet privately you're railing against what institutions are creating via art. Well, yes. Well, in the sense that I'm there to un 
learn everything. I mean, you know, I'm hoping that um, what I'm there to do is to disrupt the learning. <laughs> Not and I have no interest in teaching anyone anything. But um, you know, so in that sense, I've seen you know the shift from you know the MFA program being 12 students to now being like 50 students. You know, and uh, the university thinks that it can make money from artists. How? I have no idea because they charge a lot for people to come and study art. You know, it's the same thing. Is it the same thing where like I get really mad at the institutions that teach the culinary arts because I think it's a Ponzi scheme? Right. I do believe that there's a small few that need it and will thrive with that institutional knowledge and structure. What I get upset about is you're teaching everyone one way to be successful, valuing one way of cooking. There's nothing wrong with learning how to cook institutions like in a prison or hospital or what like Dan Giusti is doing, which is like so fucking punk rock and rebellious and truly inspirational to cook food in schools. He's one of the most highly trained chefs in the world. And he's fucking making school lunches. And no one can quite understand what that is. And he has every right to be upset when people think, oh, that's a step down. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're, you're not really using technique. So in the realm of food, when you give me like art understandings in food, like metaphors, I can get that pretty clearly. But the problem is, is again, I think the professionalism, and I, I don't know how you convince people to fail on their own accord, (laughs) right? Like you don't need to be a culinary school graduate to cook. You can Mm -hmm. do that anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. 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 No, I have a friend who uh, we opened up this restaurant in Berlin and she's never cooked before she became the cook. Is it? Did you open up with Dalit? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. You guys got a Michelin star, right? Yeah. Which, you know, and, you know, so that goes to show, you know, that, and, and she's, and she's improving every day. I mean, she just came and cooked here and I just tasted all the sauces and. I have like, wait, I have to be more open myself. I can't, that's my challenge is to constantly be open to things, to challenge my default setting and who I am as a person should be like, of course, Fantastic. You now want to be a chef. But I know Dalit as like model Dalit. Yeah. <laughs> and I, for the life of me, couldn't put two and two together because she like moved to Berlin and she's like, she's going to be a chef. And, re- and I was like, oh man, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck's going on anymore. This is crazy. And I just didn't take her seriously. So when she got a mission star, I should have congratulated her, but I don't remember who told me. I was like, wow, I'll eat crow. <laughs> yeah, so you should call her now. You know? Yeah. And that's what I can't understand is my own ignorance is like fucking so high that I'm like, it's happening all around me. The world is so small that your partner's with her in this restaurant. We both just figured this out that the circle is way smaller than it actually is. <laughs> and that's amazing. And I try to derive meaning from just about anywhere, anyone that's trying to do it. Yet, I'm still stuck with blinders on that. Well, no, you have to, she, she's got to work at, uh, you know, this three mission star restaurant. She's got to do this. Yeah. Yet, the irony is the chefs that I admire the most all taught themselves. Yeah. 
So I'm a fucking idiot. There you go. <laughs> so is food then like, what's happening? Because like, I feel like everything's running so parallel in the world, culturally, that you can't really distinguish one thing from another. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think it was, I mean, for me, it was a big deal when that first show came out on PBS, The Mind of the Chef, right? Because I really saw the way, yeah, the way you were thinking, you know? And I think that's really important, you know, more so than like, you know, how the food is made. To me, it's like, how do you think about what you're doing and finding ways to, yeah, to make make a difference? Do you think that food, because it's so taken for granted, because everyone has to eat, and I do believe everyone would rather eat delicious things than non-delicious things, and it's like breathing air yeah. that no one thinks about it, that it can reveal so much more about an individual and a culture and a set of beliefs than people ever care to give credit to. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like in Asia, I mean, people really care about what they eat, even to the lowest denominator. Right? And eating is great in Asia. If you have no money, you can still eat really well. Yeah. You know, so in, in that way, I mean, I think, um, yeah, it does go to show like where where the worlds are in that sense you know i have i have a film that uh i filmed an old like kind of retired farmer and he you know he just goes out of the house oh i saw that a little bit right yeah. you just do a film and a dude a farmer in yeah, thailand yeah. just doing his life yeah and I, you won a, did you win an award i no <laughs> no but i got good reviews but anyway you know, so he goes out and as he's walking along, he's foraging, you know, he's picking things. I mean, he could see, he knows where the little eggplants are, he knows, and he picks things as he goes. And then he comes home and then he cooks it. And he's taking a nap. Yeah. <laughs> and then he takes a nap in the middle of the day, you know. Um, so it's kind of, and that's, I think, really important to see. But does it mean you're a filmmaker now too? I, I, it doesn't I, matter. There, there's no, yeah, there's, I'm making pottery today, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm returned to the object by making it myself. So, yeah. Can restaurants be art then? Yes. How come no one thinks so then? Um, because it is business first, right? Is business and money what fuck everything up? Ultimately? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the motive of the reason for it existing, you know, how does it… I mean, we have a kitchen upstate that opens every summer. It opens, you know, between, yeah, opens Friday to Sunday. And it's a fixed price. Everyone comes and eat. You know, you get like a family style, you know, and it's losing money, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, we find a way to, so we try to find a way to fund it by doing something else. We sell art or, <laughs> you know. <laughs> art that you make? Yeah. So what is it that you make that people can buy? Um, if it seems like a lot of what you make is ephemeral and in the moment, it's almost like you make mandalas, right? And that's what I always joke that food is. It's a mandala. You make a stupid sandcastle every day that people shit out. <laughs> and it's literally the dumbest profession. <laughs> it is the dumbest profession in the world. It really is because you intentionally choose a life of suffering, pain, no money. And 
there's nothing permanent about it. Yeah. I can't make something that people are going to be able to see around the world. And it's by choice <clears throat> that a lot of people do this. So what is it that you do that like people can like buy or or like that's not sort of ephemeral like uh, a pad thai in a gallery? I mean there are there are things. <laughs> what else have you got going on like besides this book? Well, this is actually it's interesting because it's it's uh, it's a uh, it was an exhibition like a retrospective, and what we decided to do was to like uh, make every recipe that I I mean at, up to that point to make all the recipes of all the you know so all the recipes that I've used in my work. So it's a kind of res- retrospective of recipes. It's a cookbook. It's a cookbook, yeah. <laughs> this is what is like head scratching. <laughs> so Rickrit has a cookbook full of all the recipes. And is this an art book? It's about art, yeah. It's about making art. But it's a cookbook. Yeah. Do you ever like uh, study paradox like… Uh, Gerdel's incompleteness theorem. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I know of it. No, I never. But this is like it. what it's like, where essentially in a mathematical uh, formula, he proved that mathematics was incomplete because he put this sentence in a math, a simple math problem, using very simple arithmetic. This sentence is not true, right? And he turned it into this sentence is not provable. But if you say it's true, it's false. False. It's true. This is the same shit. <laughs> I'm looking at a cookbook. And he's saying, it's not a cookbook. It's a book about art. But it's a book about art that's also a cookbook. And it sort of switches upon itself when you think about it. It's a living, breathing, alive. It's alive, ultimately. Which is, I think, like what I was talking about from the beginning, right? Trying to bring life back into things. You can't help but know that now if you tell someone. But how can you dismiss this? How can a critic say, this is bullshit. This is just a cookbook. <laughs> I don't know. I don't worry about that. I worry about the dumbest shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have so many questions. Well, other than the cookbook, teaching class, making pottery again. Making pottery. Uh, we're working on another cookbook. Actually, with a friend. But an art book, another art book. Um, Or is it a cookbook? Just a cookbook. It's a cookbook about the idea of cooking, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Are you just punking everyone? (laughs) No, no. I mean, you know, when you… All right, when you made the chicken and you're talking about all these ideas that you put into it. I mean, you, you know, it's an idea that you've made. Right from different experiences, and maybe from seeing certain things that is missing, or seeing certain things that is you know that you feel the need to, you know. It's so, so how do you come to that point? You know, how do you come to a point where you put two things together to make a third thing? Because you have to say it. Yeah, it's just like you're compelled that I have to fucking do it, and ultimately I don't give a fuck what the repercussions are, and I'll deal with them. When they happen, but I know what my tent was. <laughs> That's yeah. why you're a bad businessman. 
Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, has how do you avoid money then in, in what you do? Because money tended to corrupt everything. I, you know, I have the fortune, fortunate position of not, not being, I'm, you know, I survive. It's not about, you know, I, first of all, to never think about making money. That's it. I just don't think about making money. So I don't have a studio. I have many places that I go to, but I don't really have a factory. I don't sit around making art. So when you see someone like Jeff Koons, without being critical of him, is that good or bad for art? Well, I mean, you know, Jeff has his way of being Jeff, which is to do those things. So as everybody else, so as all my other friends, I just don't need to do that. I think you need to write like a book, book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I teach my class is, uh, I mean, I actually told the university I wanted to teach a class called How Not to Make Anything. And they said, you can't, you can't do that. You can't put, make that title. So the class is now called uh, Making Without Objects. And what's the goal of that class? Um, the goal of that class is to make a lot, but without, you know, without spending money. I mean, the more you speak about how you perceive art and create art, it's like some Zen koan. Well, you know, I would say it's, it's like I said, you know, it's about thinking. So I, I, I don't need to have a space to make things because I use my head. I do it all in my head. Is that problematic, though? Because when I tell younger cooks, and I'm not trying to conflate the two, or myself sometimes when you're creating, when you create just in your head, you build something that is only good on paper. Well, yeah, but I mean, with, um, I mean, I would say, you know, you, you build it in your head until it comes to the right point and then you execute it. You know, I usually, I mean, partly because I don't want to spend any money or use any money. So I only make things when it needs to be made. For a young cook, like a professional cook that's thinking about this, how do you tell them what that feeling is that when it's right, when it's ripe in your head for an idea? Because I see too often that it's not fully baked or they try to make the idea in their head and it fails spectacularly and then they never try it ever again. I mean, it's like, okay, just take an omelet. And usually when you go to apply for a job, you have to make an omelet, right? True. So how do you make the best omelet? My answer? Well, any any chef's answer. Okay. You see? So they can think about it. They have experienced it. So how do they make it better? How do you make your omelet? It depends on the circumstance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it also depends on who I'm trying to impress. All right. And what was the best omelet you ever made? I think the most moving omelet I've ever seen was Andre Soltner when he taught at the FCI, mm -hmm. my cooking school that I graduated from. And in that moment, it, it almost made me weep because the reason why the egg is my favorite food is nothing is more versatile. You can turn into just about anything and they're all delicious. And it comes from the most, it's like incredibly humble. And depending on what it is, at least in Asia, I believe it's the most inexpensive way to add luxury to a dish because a yolk is that creaminess. And 
he's telling this story, making this omelet about being in Alsace and war ravaged and so on and so forth, where food is so precious that an egg is more valuable to him than a diamond. And you hear these stories from grandmas when I'm in Italy and they're like a truffle. Fuck that. I want a potato. You know, like that potato at a moment in time was more valuable than a truffle. I'll never forget that. And I see him making this omelet and he gets the pan perfect and it's got to be the right steel and he's not using Teflon and it's not. So he chooses that and that in itself is very symbolic. And I don't know if a lot of students got that. He he shows a lot. He picked them all up, and he's going like this, putting them up in the air, and he chooses the right one for him, and he explains why it's the right one, and he gets three eggs. He gets very cold butter, and he cuts it meticulously, and he gets all the butter cubes laid out, and he gets his mise en place all set up, salt, pepper, and he cracks the eggs in a bowl, and he does this one thing, and it I'll never forget it. He cracks the eggs he puts, and he puts the egg in, and then he takes his finger and he wipes out everything that's in the egg. I do that. Right? Yeah. And <laughs> that's when I was like, holy fuck, that's making an omelet. Yeah. And how he proceeded to make it and temper it and everything and add the butter. It was performance art. It was everything. But it, what it meant to me was make the most of fucking everything and do it awesome. When I'm at home, cooking for myself, I don't always do it that way. In fact, I never do it for myself. So if I needed to impress someone, like a younger <laughs> cook, that's how I do it. <laughs> well, Dave, you should do it for yourself first. <laughs> oh, man. I can't talk to you anymore. <laughs> Talking to you guys in the art world, it's like fucking some like mental dojo where I just get the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> Jerry was the same way. Roberta Smith was the same way. Yeah, I don't know what's going on, but it's good. Um, and there are a lot of other artists you could talk to that will be, you know, a lot of pleasure about eating and cooking. Why has it been so, I'd say, undiscovered, but why has that merger? And why have I grow up in this sort of bro culture where, like, food and art? No, it's food and craft. Like, working for chefs, but like, nah. Don't use that fucking word in this kitchen. We're craftsmen. Mm, maybe they feel that it's uh, more useful, you know, and art is something that's a bit too frivolous, maybe. And food should be more used. Utilitarian. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, I mean, I, I, I think art should be useful. I'm going to leave you on this because I, I want to talk to you again and again and hopefully… I'll come up with some different perspectives, but thank you for sharing so much uh, of your insight. Has there ever been a ready-made in food in, in, in culinary, like modern culinary history? Do you think? Has there been something like that? I think we just talked about it. What? The egg. You think it's the egg? I think it's the egg. How so? Because it's universal. People eat it all the time. And everyone knows how to make it. I thought about this, at least from an American perspective. And I totally see, if you, from a global perspective, it certainly is the egg, I guess. And I got in trouble with Bourdain a few years back that has become like a running joke 
because he got me drunk in a like a talk. <laughs> <laughs> and he got me to talk shit about California or San Francisco. And I wound up saying, it's the first time in my life something got taken out of context. And I said, hey, you know, California, particularly San Francisco, the Bay Area, has been so progressive in all of the things, from sexuality to politics to technology to food. And now all they do is sort of they're stuck with the success of the past and everything's moving forward with the exception of food. And I love Alice. And Alice is very close to me, but there's a lack of diversity because uh, the purity of what shape Panisse and the purity of the ingredient is so powerful, it extinguishes any desire for someone else to challenge it and to do something new. And I thought that it wasn't, it's just not healthy. And I called it, they don't do anything. They just put fucking figs on a plate and turn into this huge fucking stupid thing. My book tour got canceled. The Asian American Society canceled it. It was fucking so dumb. <laughs> and I thought about that moment because I did it sort of as a joke in 2008, 2009. And I thought it actually was meaningful because so many people got upset about it. I was like, maybe I was fucking right. And now I look at it differently from not a craft perspective, from an art perspective. And I'm like, if you go there still and Zuni Cafe and restaurants that I love tremendously, you might buy a $9 plate of peaches or figs. Perfect. Pristine, but nothing has been done to it. Mm -hmm. All they did was go talk to the farmer or go to the market and say, okay, I'm putting this on a plate. I'm going to charge you for it. That to me, whether it was unintentional or not, <laughs> That's the closest thing we've ever had to Duchamp. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, well, anything can be food in a restaurant. What do you think about that? I just don't know if people understand the significance still of what happened in the 70s where Alice, Jeremiah Tower, all of those chefs were like, no, fuck this. No one's going to tell us what our food is or isn't. I'm not even going to cut it. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, you could call that a ready-made, but everything is ready-made, you know. Now everything's already made. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm thinking more about the farmer in a way. Huh. The per, you know. All right. Uh, I will stop talking, get you out of here. You're a busy <laughs> man with big, important ideas to think about. Uh, well, we're working on this cookbook, and uh, when it's, uh, we're going to present it at some point, end of May, if you're around, maybe. Yeah. No. We're going to cook. I want, I'm here. Okay. Well, let you know and come over. Done and done. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is uh, usually my class that I was telling you about is done in a kitchen. And the kitchen is in the gallery. And maybe, and I, I'll start teaching again like in September. And I think it would be great to have you come over. Can I help? Yes. <laughs> I would love to. That would be amazing. <laughs> Seriously. I, I just. Yeah, and then we could talk about this idea with like young people. I think this has, I would love to be part of that and to start that conversation because I think the shifts in understanding of food have to change in a way that I don't think anyone quite knows, including myself. So thank you, Rick Ritt. Oh, thanks. Okay. Good luck on the book and it's going to come out. It's going to come out, yeah, basically end of May. All I right. mean, Lola has it on the computer. It's and what's the, it going to be called? It's called The Bastard's Cookbook. <laughs> Why The Bastard's Cookbook? Well, you know, like the bastard, you know, is like 
you don't have a real origin. You don't know the origin. It comes from somewhere, but you don't, you know, it's you know, something like that. Call me Ishmael type of stuff. <laughs> All right. Thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Well, that was my conversation with Rick Rick Tervenesia, the fantastic artist who's doing a lot of new, interesting things and has been doing in his entire artistic career. So there were a lot of things that we spoke about, and um, I know that I'm going to listen to this several times just to sort of understand all the topics. But uh, again, like I know I want to re-listen to the Pad Thai story of his first gallery, Doing Food Again and Again, because I, I just think it's unbelievable that someone could do that without ever explaining themselves. Like It's unbelievable that he can just rise above so many different things. The one thing I wanted to sort of say when we left and we were talking about the cookbook, he's got a lot of different projects going on. But again, it's the idea of making something art and proclaiming something as art and him carrying on the legacy. Rick Rick sort of carrying on the legacy, it seems to me, of someone like our Marcel Duchamp in the sense that he's writing a book that's about food, but he says it's an art book. But if you say it's an art book, it's a book about cooking. So it's both simultaneously. It's an art book and a cookbook. And I just think that he's fucking with everyone and I love it. So it's like almost alive because he calls it art. I get it in a way that I didn't before. So check out his new cookbook. That's a sort of an art book simultaneously. I want to get to a Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com question. We have one from Robbie Collins. He goes, you were talking this week about how chefs order better. And I'm interested to hear what that means. More importantly, though, my question is at restaurants, what is considered bad restaurant etiquette when ordering? What should we stay away from so we don't annoy the staff? Great question, Robbie. We've spoken about very briefly with the chefs that have been on this podcast about how to order well and what to order well in restaurants. And I think what that means is like you're a little bit more adventurous. If you avoid the sort of traditional things that most people want to order, right? Like if there's tuna tartare and artichoke dip and a hamburger, even though that's stuff that I order, that's not really adventurous. And and it's not adventurous isn't the right word. I just feel like I'm not doing a good job. But when a chef sits down or a group of cooks sit down at a restaurant and they're willing to sort of eat – How they order is a very different thing than almost everyone else. And the best way I can express that is whether they have the funds to buy a big bottle of wine, that's not the case. I'm not even concerned about drinking right now. It's like how they order. There's not going to be any eating allergy requests unless it's absolutely necessary. There's not going to be any sauce on the side. There's not going to be any well-done orders unless someone is expecting a child. There's going to be no... Really ridiculous special request, number one, first and foremost. And number two, it's probably coursed out in a way that looks like someone that looks at tickets that come out in a kitchen all day would order and course out. So they're going to order, you know, the appetizers and the starters, and then they're going to course it out next with sort of the hot appetizers. And maybe it'll course out with a series of raw stuff and oysters and some raw composed fish plates. And then they're going to start with some... uh, maybe like a pasta course and then I'll go to fish course and then they'll course it with meats and with the sides and stuff like that. It's, it's just very methodical in how it's ordered. And it's um, very clear to me that 
when you work in restaurants, you just tend to know how to navigate a menu. So it's hard for me to give you a concrete example. But if I had a menu in front of me, I think nine times out of 10, without even looking at the guest, I'd be able to tell you, and not just me, I'm sure a lot of people in this industry would be able to tell you if they work in the business or not, right? You just sort of know and it's something that, talking about sounds silly, but if you work in restaurants and you see tickets come in, you know what I'm talking about. And again, you might be able to ask the server or the runner when they come into the kitchen, hey, is table 57, for instance, do they look like cooks? So the server might head to their table and they'll look for the telltale signs of scars. Do they just sort of have the feel of being a cook? Because the biggest tell is this, when you have a group of cooks eating in a restaurant, the only thing they're going to do is talk about food. So essentially, it's an easy tell when someone's in the business. And again, I, I think I told the story once when a bunch of my friends, we went up to Danielle's restaurant in like 2001. And I think we were at Kraft at the time. And there was like four of us and we ordered the pre-fee menu. And we were just trying to like fit in because it's so nice and opulent inside. You know, Danielle Balut comes to our table and says, you guys are a bunch of cooks. Let us cook for you. There's this uh, family, there's this sorority slash fraternity type of feel when you work in this business. And a lot of the giveaways are before you even order the fucking food, people know that you're in the business. And it's a sign of mutual respect that you want to like partake in another restaurant's delicious food and sort of uh, celebrate in it. And, uh, you know, it's customary for restaurants to sort of fill in the gaps and, and thank them for sort of coming to the restaurant because everyone in this business works so goddamn hard. It's one of the true perks, I hope, that a lot of people understand that when you go to another person's restaurant and you're in this industry, you're, you're sort of like taken care of. At least I know that we try to do that in our restaurants. The second part of that question was, what things should we stay away from so we don't annoy the staff? And I think that's the simple thing. First and foremost is don't be a jerk to the, to the staff. Show up on time. Show up early if you can. There's nothing worse than showing up late. Also, don't do huge tables. Doing anything more than a six top is too much. And I even say a six top is too much. I'd say keep it to four if you're going to go out with a group of friends. Don't order things that make it difficult for the kitchen. I remember doing a dinner at Wiley Friends restaurant, WD50, and Michelle Bra was doing a special pop-up. And there was a diner that came in, and uh, he was doing his famous gargoyu, right? The, one of the most famous dishes in the world, which is essentially 15 to 25 different vegetables cooked in their own special pot and assembled in a beautiful fashion. Again, one of the most iconic dishes of all time. And uh, <laughs> it was the height of summer, and there was local bell peppers, and one of the Tickets came back. You have one of the greatest chefs ever to grace the planet making this food. And the nerve of this customer, I'll never forget it, said, no green or yellow bell peppers. We can eat red bell peppers. And in French, Michel Bra says, fucking Americans. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. I just cracked up. And he was just like, just so stupid. Yeah, you don't want to say stuff like that. Unless it's a real fucking allergy, but even if it is the case, like, don't eat it. Just order it. Especially in a moment like that when you have one of the great, great chefs in the world making you food. Try not to do sauce on the side. You know, I always think that if you make it difficult to order, if it's really hard to order, 
that's a good sign that it might be hard for the kitchen to do. And um, when you are trying to split plates and you're trying to sort of customize it for yourself, you have every reason to do that. No one's going to stop you. But it definitely is a pain in the ass for the kitchen and for the server. And then especially when you say you order and then like 45 minutes later, you're like, oh, no, 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 I don't want this. I want something else. That's a real problem. Another real problem I see in tasting menu restaurants, you know, especially when a menu is set and a dining room is small where a table is looking at the courses that are being dropped and they're probably going to get them in the next 30 minutes. And let's just say a dish has uni and I see this a lot. Someone gets uni on another table and then you see the server being called over to another table and a guest will ask, what is that? And is that something we're going to get? And they say, yes, that's a course with X, Y, Z and uni. And then all of a sudden they'll say, I'm allergic to uni. I can't eat that. So the last minute allergy is fucking the biggest pain in the fucking ass. Not only do you ruin it for people with real allergies, you ruin it for everyone else because now the kitchen has to just stop everything and make you food. We would be happy, and I I can't speak for every restaurant, but if you give ample time, we will be happy to make you anything to accommodate your dietary wishes. So one of the worst things you can do is just change things last minute. I think at the end of the day, it's this. This is what you should do. Be nice, and when there's a problem, try not to make it really a big deal, and just be cool and be nice and courteous back. Anyway, that's too much rambling again on that question. Thank you, Robert, for sending them in. Keep on sending in those questions to askdave at majordomomedia.com. I'll get you guys out of here. Give us five stars on however you rate this. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Stay tuned next week for two more podcasts for our anniversary month of this whole series. Thank you so much, guys. Bye.